You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Hello, could I please speak with Ocean Vuong? Hello, Ocean. What a pleasure to speak with you finally. I'm I'm so delighted. It, I know it's been a long time in coming, but we've had a, a, a few difficulties recently. Yes, no doubt, no doubt. How how have you been living this period? What does your quarantine look like at this moment? And what am I interrupting? interesting what you say um what i'm hearing ocean is that you're saying that this quarantine is quite natural to you and when there isn't this quarantine however terrible the circumstances are of course you are then obliged to do what we're doing now you and i which is to chat about your work and in a and in a way what you would prefer is uh, for silence after the work in the form of the reader. Yes, I, I, I think that's right. I think I feel like the work is finished and it's, it's akin to sending, you know, I think a book is kind of like a raft you send down a river. And um, well, I don't know if it's any useful to anyone, the raft, but you send it, you, you build it, and you send it down a river. And you quickly have to turn your back to the world in order to make another one mm. and stay on the raft. You can't make another raft right. while being on the raft. <laughs> right, right. So it, it feels like, um, you know, returning to something already so old, but that's the nature of all this, you know. You know, as I was reading your your magnificent... What can we call it? On Earth, we're briefly gorgeous. I, 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 I wonder if we can call it a novel. I wonder what we can call it, and I wonder if indeed we need to call it anything other than a magnificent piece of writing between poetry and prose for me. I was reminded of a passage by Elaine Scarry called On Beauty, which I'd love to read to you, very short, and have you simply react. It's a very opening of the book, as I recall, and I wrote it down. What is a felt experience of cognition at the moment when one stands in the presence of a beautiful boy or flower or bird? It seems to incite even to require the act of replication. 
Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein says that when the eye sees something beautiful, the hand wants to draw it. That's right. And, and uh, it blew my mind. You know, I it, it informed my thinking about beauty greatly. I owe a lot. I I even credit that book at the end of my own. Um, she's sort of like a um, a north star in my thinking about beauty. And and yes, it's it's this moment of intoxicating power that we are confronted with when we encounter the blank page. And I think it's not a coincidence that. So much of our writers in our species have committed to try to recast beauty uh, in new ways as a way of preservation, as a way of forwarding. It's almost like the, uh, preserving our DNA, but also preserving what we value. And in this sense, I think, you know, who knows if the book is a novel or anything. I like to think of it as a novel in the original sense of the novel, which is something always up for assessment right which is a, a form that is still up for auction right it is and perhaps the novel only really dies when we have already decided what it is that's right. Um, I, at the same time, you know, I love the line of Lawrence Stern where he says, to define is to distrust. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure we, ne we need really to give it, uh, to categorize it. But what, what struck me so strongly in an Elaine Scarian, which to my mind made, made the bridge to your work is that, Beauty is at the core, at the center, and therefore, where there's beauty, there's also a glimmer of hope. Yeah, yeah. And how beauty is informed by obstacles and struggle. I, I think in the zeitgeist, we often see beauty as merely decorous, and I wanted to re-examine it as a prerequisite towards survival. What is its use? What is its purpose? And in a way, we can argue that there are many forms of beauty, perhaps even more beautiful than the decorous and the aesthetically pleasing. You know, I, I think of the starfish who mm. slims when amputated, mm. go back stubbornly. Um, that to me is perhaps more beautiful than than any great paintings I've encountered, that that notion of a determined forwardness uh, might even surpass aesthetic beauty. And so I, I think that the novel is in some ways an essay in that it is trying to forge new ways of thinking um, using the old visions. Love this uh, so much. Um, another another person who comes to mind as I read you, and I think you mention her somewhere, but I couldn't find where, is Anne Carson. And, oh, yes. and, and you know, and, and, and that, together with what I take to be your obsession, maybe, or your proximity, your closeness to the Greek world, really inspires me. And I, you know, I've had this, I've had this wish, Ocean, which you don't know, but which Max Porter, who brought us together, does know, of bringing you together with Ishion Hutchinson. Oh, 
Yes, great mind. To talk yeah. about to talk about your reimagining or reinterpretation of the Greek ancient world. What do you think of that idea? What do you think of bringing you together with Ischion, but also and Carson, and how maybe that could constitute a constellation or a pedigree for you? Absolutely. I would even add to that uh, cohort, Carl Phillips, um, who's, whose work is obsessed with um, Greek modes. Let's right? do it. Let's do it. When 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 the when the the quarantine is over or at least flattened yeah. a little bit, promise me that we'll bring the you together as a marvelous, enchanted, and perhaps magical trinity. It would be delightful. I, I think it's so important to continue to collaborate with the tradition and history because. Every participant in their era, in their epoch, has this opportunity to salvage new ways of thinking through the old text. Mm. And so I, I think, you know, it's almost like, like I said, our DNA, like you and I, our DNA contains those of our ancestors, and yet we are living in the present because of them. We are the idiosyncratic new visions of the old. And I think what happens with the Greek text, particularly how it is, quote-unquote, canonized within the canonical, is that, you know, many Greek people would perhaps argue against that. They would say, this is not uh, the, the Western pillars. This is a localized. This is our literature that has been appropriated into the large Western canon. But we perhaps want to take it back. What does it mean? And so I think... It's still up for auction, and I think the more participants collaborating with the text allows us to not necessarily wipe away a canon. I think a canon is a strong rubric to work against and work with, but it allows us to add new dimensions to it, to make it richer. I can't wait. That's all I can say. I really can't wait. Um I don't know if anybody has has mentioned this to you, but in reading one of of the chapters in On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, I I was reminded of Joe Brainerd, and I don't know if you know Joe Brainerd or if he's significant yes. to you. Is he? Oh, very much. I mean, the whole New York School um, was so important to me. You know. Um, I think that Michael Silverblatt says something very um, provocative to me, and I think it's true. And he says, after the New York School, it's hard. Poetry is still trying to forge new ground. Right. Everything was blown so wide open that it's hard to be new without finding semblances of what the New York School did. And I think that's, that's true, and it's a great challenge to try to, to find new ways, innovative ways to cast the mind with that in mind. But yes, Joe Brainerd and his collaborations, uh, particularly I remember. Well, I remember, you know, I remember yes. that whole chapter. Um, I, 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 I wonder if you, you might read the beginning of, of the chapter, which begins with, I remember the table. I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear it in your voice rather than in mine. Yeah, um, 
I actually encountered um, that Joe Brainerd's text backwards. Um, it was through Mary Rufus. I am not, but you know, um, so many friends have recently told me I must meet Mary Ruffle. As a matter of fact, I want to read her and then call her up if she's up for it. Oh, she's fantastic. I'm sure she would. Um, I encountered that uh, essay first in her book of essays, Madness, Rack and Honey. I must, I must read that because Brainerd to me, and I'm sorry I just interrupted you. So please, no, no, please, please, please remember your thought, but I'm, I'm getting quite excited. I, I excited, I, 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 um, uh, encountered Joe Brainerd through Georges Perec, who was, oh, yes. who was so, so interested by the, I remember that he wrote his own Je me souviens which are, if, yeah. you, if you haven't read them, they're absolutely fabulous. And in a way, um, I, I always think of the word remembering in the true, strong, etymological sense of putting the members back together. To yes, con- yeah, which to my mind, which to my mind is so much of what excites me in your writing. That's right. So, it's interested in the milieu, and Brainer is interested in a sort of Bildungsroman. That's right. And, um, and, it's and, so fascinating. I heard the rumor, and you might know better than I, that Parag actually did not read Brainer, but only heard the conceit. And then he, he said, I, I don't want to read it. I want to just write, know the conceit so that I, I can write my own without being sort of haunted by it. I don't know if it's true, but if you read the, t- the two side by side, it seems like it would be. Well, you know, it, it's so interesting. Yeah. It's so interesting to me because in a way, it, you know, the, the Italians always say, si non ne vero e ben trovato. If it isn't true, it's a well-made-up story because mm-hmm. in a sense, it it fits so beautifully with Perec. Perec mm-hmm. lo- loving loving rules uh, loving to be audacious, breaking those rules, loving respecting those rules, as in writing a whole book, La Disparition, Disappearance, without the letter E. Um, so he, he loved, he loved that kind of, 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 um, of way of going. And maybe he felt that if he had read Joe Brainerd, it would have, in a sense, influenced his own remembrances. Possible. Yeah, it's very possible. Yeah. It's very possible, yeah. but in 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 Perec, I think you're right. There's there's a deeply sociological bent to 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 his his je me souviens. But do read do read those first maybe those first two pages. They're so beautiful, oh. Ocean. Okay. I remember the table. I remember the table made of words given to me from your mouth. I remember the room burning. The room was burning because Lan spoke of fire. I remember the fire as it was told to me in the apartment in Hartford. All of us asleep on the hardwood floor, swaddled in blankets from the Salvation Army. I remember the man from the Salvation Army handing my father a stack of coupons for Kentucky Fried Chicken, which we called Old Man Chicken, as Colonel Sanders' face was plastered on every red bucket. 
I remember tearing into the crispy meat and oil like it was a gift from saints. I remember learning that saints were only people whose pain was notable, noted. I remember thinking you and Lon should be saints. Remember, you said each morning before we stepped out in the cold Connecticut air. Don't draw attention to yourself. You're already Vietnamese. It's the first day of August, and the sky is clear over central Virginia, now thick with summer's growth. We're visiting Grandpa Paul to celebrate my graduating college the spring before. We're in the garden. The first colors of evening fall upon the wooden fence, and everything ambers as if we're in a snow globe filled with tea. You're in front of me, walking away toward the far fence, your pink shirt shifting in and out of the shade. It catches, then loses the shadows under the oaks. I remember my father, which is to say I'm putting him back together. I'm putting him together in a room because there must have been a room. There must have been a square in which a life would occur briefly with or without joy. I remember joy. With the sound of coins in a brown paper bag, his wages after a day scaling fish at the Chinese market on Cortland. I remember the coins spilling onto the floor, how we ran our fingers through the coal pieces, inhaling their copper promise. How we thought we were rich, how the thought of being rich was a kind of happiness. I remember the table, how it must have been made of wood. Oh, oh, oh. And that last, that last remember is so powerful to me. That first sentence, Ocean, I remember my father, which is to say, I am putting him back together. Right. That, I think when we, we live and move through time, time creates a sense of dismemberment. Of what? A sense of dismemberment. Time and space is, I think, a form of dismemberment. And I think it is when we stop and remember. And it also remembering is at the cost of living. When we remember, we surrender the present. We leave our bodies, in a sense. We leave our sense of our surroundings. It's incredibly costly to remember, cost your very life, cost your very moment, the very present that you should be living, you remember. And so... You know, it takes great amount of care to start to say, I will not live for a moment in order to remember, to put someone else back together. I wonder why when you when you say this, a word that, that comes to my mind is nostalgia. Mm. In a way, a, a, a claiming for a past, whether it existed or did not. allows the opportunity for thoroughness, but it can easily slip into nostalgia, you know, if we remember poorly, or if we perform memory without actually looking at the hard facts. I think that's one of the, the problems of the credo of President Trump, you know, make America great again. Mm. It, it, it performs memory but it is, in fact, amnesia. Mm, say and, something and more about that. Say something more about that. Well, if we ask, you know, when, where, where and when are you referring to when you say the word again, the conversation usually falls apart. 
So I think it's casting the nostalgic promise without locating a time and place. And so it's actually a dream. It's a dream backward, but it doesn't move. And I think one of the possibilities of literature is to remember better, to remember well. And to remember well, I feel, is to remember thoroughly so that we can try our best to put the broken pieces back together on a specific, idiosyncratic level. You know, I, I, I remember always, you know, Ocean, my, my listeners will know and you will probably already have devised that I'm a quotomaniac by profession. I, I, re I, I really have trouble walking around uh, the, the, the world, as it were, without quotations in my, in my mind, um, yeah. feeling a bit like Akakia Akakievich in the overcoat, never quite knowing if I'm in the middle of the street or in the middle of a sentence. But there's a wonderful line in Susan Sontag where she says, just wait until now becomes then. You'll see how happy we were. Isn't it? Yeah. What what yeah. The, what the, what, did the, what does it conjure in you? I think it's this notion that we are still helpless, as much as we are in the present, and the present supposedly promises agency and lordship over our lives. We are, in fact, quote unquote, metaphorically and now literally quarantined under the limitations of time and space and gravity. And, and I think it's a sobering and humbling moment to remind that, you know, there's, there's so much more we will learn when we arrive at the future about ourselves now, that we are only partially knowledgeable, even as we are fully present. I'd love to spend a long time with you just quoting lines to you and having you comment upon them. I think that would please me greatly. But short of that... Yeah, that would, that would be a way to live. It, sure. it, it would be one, one way of living. But Ocean, what, in, in this moment of time that we're, where you're, you're not obliged in any form or fashion to go on the circuit of, of book launches and book tours, uh, does this afford you more time to, for instance, read or do whatever gives you pleasure? And if reading is what you have more time to do, I'd be very curious to know both what you're reading and what you're rereading at this moment. Yeah, I've, um, I've fallen into a mix, a chaotic mix between quantum physics and um, literary theory, cultural theory. So a lot of Adorno, Benjamin. I love Benjamin. Um, he cast this incredible revelation to me about the art of storytelling branching mm. off um, toward when the print, the printing press became popularized and how the act of reading became an isolated, lonely act and therefore the novel became an independent endeavor rather than a collective one. And it, it was so, so beautiful and fascinating. And, and I'm, I'm thinking a lot about my role as a storyteller, both in the terms of poetry and uh, a novel, uh, under that condition, that the, the 
technologies of the world does inform how we tell our stories and that we, again, are not always in true absolute autonomy um, with our work as much as we'd like to be. Um, the ben, the Benjaminia reading, um, I, I take it, is both the work of art in the age of technical or mechanical reproduction and also his essay, which I so love on, supposedly on Leskov, but more, more, it's, it's supposedly, right? It's, <laughs> I, I, I don't even know where Leskov fits into that, into that essay. I know, I know. It's just a, a marvelous speak about hiding, hiding the subject. It's so beautifully done. But the, the storyteller, it has in it, again, I'm so sorry to quote this from memory, but it has in it one of my favorite lines ever, Ocean, which I'd love you to comment on again. I am playing that game with you now, even though we can't be together, where he is quoting Paul Valéry, and he says that man no longer works at what cannot be abbreviated. And it seems to me um, that that line is particularly poignant and pungent at this particular moment when we actually are obliged in some way at least for the moment, and perhaps for a longer moment, to slow down. And I think about that also in relation to your own practice. And I somehow imagine you as a slow reader. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Is, is that true? Yes, yes. Well, I, I have mild dyslexia. Dyslexia runs in my family. Oh. Ah. Um, and it was a big struggle for me. I, I wasn't able to read with um, chapter books with pure autonomy until I was 11. And uh, my, my brother, for example, is completely dyslexic. Um, so it, it, it's a challenge. I, I can straddle it, but I, I was really encouraged. But I will say that I don't see it as a disability to me. Right. Um, you know, because it helped me read closer, clearer, and I see words as material. Mm. I, I can see them falling apart. You know, uh, right. better for worse. You see that you faster. see they they are there. They are there, present for you. You know that wonderful. Um, uh, uh, passage in, in uh, Sartre wrote a huge book on Flaubert who suffered terribly from dyslexia yeah. and, uh, and, the, and the book is called The Idiot of the Family because that is the way Flaubert's father who was a doctor referred to his son Gustave Flaubert The Idiot of the Family because as Flaubert said um Je vois le langage. I see language. And in a way, stumbling over the words was what permitted him to some extent to write the kind of prose we now have come to relish. Right. And, and it's you, like, you know, if you walk through the brush, you have to move the branches with your hand. And when you do that, you know the branches you know what kind of word it is, and you have an intimate relation through the challenge of this physical and intellectual discourse with the material. 
And if you walk on a path, it's pleasant, but you breathe by it. And, and I think for me, wading through the thickets of language allowed me to collaborate with its nature in a much more surprising and robust way. And it, it also stops you from using canned phrases. Right. You know, deep blue eyes, rolling hills. They don't arrive to me in those packages. They arrive as debris. And so I see myself in a way as a junkyard artist. Mm. I'm finding debris and casting something else from it. And I, I think that's my relationship with language. And it does come from a very slow, arduous, molasses-like reading speed deeply deeply connected to a benjaminian way of looking at the world benjamin was fascinated by the lumpensammler uh, the uh, the man who collected debris the garbage yeah. man and yeah. and you know there there are wonderful passages in the passagenwerk all about about collecting debris and making from the debris something beautiful, perhaps something poetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I've been doing that, and I've, I've also been encountering uh, the film of Prokofsky. Oh, my God. It, it was like someone told me that, I, that I, when I was in Germany, my German editor said, your films remind me of, your books remind me of Tarkovsky's film. And I never heard of Tarkovsky before, and when I, and I, I watched um, The Mirror, Uh, the other day, and it was like watching um, a, a kin, you know, seeing the image of, of, of someone I knew in my past life. It was phenomenal. I couldn't believe it. It, it was there um, in this world already. It was like coming home watching that film. How extraordinary. I have not seen that film, so I must watch it. Oh my goodness. It is a masterpiece. I mean, it's It's disjointed. It is like the mirror, but I would say it's a mirror broken on the floor. That's the exact way that the film approaches me, that every shard is a moment in time reflecting together simultaneously, out of place, and it's absolutely luminous and sharp. It's an incredible film. I love the idea that somebody told you that your work reminded you of Tarkovsky and that now upon seeing it, it feels like a homecoming. Yes, yeah, it happens, you know. That was what Lorca was for me too. You know, it was Rambo as well, you know. Um, they, they feel so um, so fresh because the, the book preserves the, the work. It's like a photograph. A novel or a book of poem is a photograph of somebody in their organic self at a certain time and place. And so I don't think a book is ever finished. You know, if I had a chance to rewrite my two books or every poem, I would do it and it would look different. But these are photographs. You let them go. And in a way, in a way that the book does become different upon everybody and every generation reading it. It changes, yeah. you know, it's something that I've, I've been obsessed with for so long, Ocean, which are, which are the, which are the books we remain faithful to? 
Um, the books, yeah. you know, the, and the relationship. I've spoken about this so often, but it it haunts me. The relationship between age and taste. What 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 do we what would what would we think about some early passions we had if we reread them now twenty years later? It's hard, you know. Um, it's it's hard. I I can't read Rambo again. Really? Um, yeah, it's so hard because he started everything for me, and I I don't want to. To have it decay any further. I was trying to teach um, a season in hell, and um, you know it was it was hard because I didn't realize it didn't age well. Right. You know, um, whatever that yeah, might but, mean, whatever that might mean, that sentence you just uttered, I always yeah. wonder who hasn't aged well. Right. You know, when when we say something hasn't aged well, uh, we're talking about two forms of aging. You know, we were talking about Perec before, and he did an experiment which he never completed, which was he wanted to photograph a neighborhood of of Paris, then write about it, and put both photograph and writing under sealed envelope to be opened up again after 12 years, and to see how that memory might, how his memory, what he remembered, what he photographed, and the city itself had changed. And these are these are fascinating, uh, fascinating um, experiments we do with our own, with our own memory and our own sense of time passing. But reading yeah. you, so many references come to my mind. I I mentioned to you uh, Ischion, and we you spoke about Rambo and Lorca, and and I mentioned Anne Carson. I also think of someone like Maggie Nelson as perhaps a kindred spirit. I, I think of Maggie always usually in this sort of trifecta with um, Teresa Hakyung Cha, um, Dick Day, Claudia Rankin's Citizen, and Don't Let Me Be Lonely, um, Maggie, of course. But also fourth, perhaps, is Banu Katil's work. So Are you familiar with Banu Katil? I'm not, and, and, and you probably heard in my silence. I mean, we have different silences for different occasions. And I always say I have holes in my culture so it can breathe. No, I don't. Yes. I don't. Yes, but, but Can I read you a little poem by Bono Castillo? Oh, please. I have it. Okay. Oh, please. <laughs> How perfect. How perfect. What is, what, what, what is the book? It's called Vertical Interrogations of Strangers. And this, this poem is called 12 Questions. Banu Castillo. Who are you? And whom do you love? What do you remember about the earth? How will you begin? Describe a morning you woke without fear. Tell me what you know about dismemberment. Where did you come from? How did you arrive? Who was responsible for the suffering of your mother? What is the shape of your body? How will you live now? What are the consequences of silence? How will you, have you prepared for your death? 
What would you say if you could? So strong. Isn't that fantastic? It really is. I can it's s- almost like a broken sonnet of questions. It's a sonnet without a volta. And it's this open interrogation in which the text almost demands a participation with the reader. This mirror that turns into its own blank page, a series of prompts. And it's incredible, particularly as it politicizes what we experience now through the borders. It's almost like the, the interrogation at one border moving through the threshold of another. Ocean, I would love you to leave us with maybe a poem of yours. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll do a new one, which, is, which can be dangerous, but I'll give it a shot. We'll see. Please, please, change. please. And it, it might change, and, and then the listeners of this phone call will forever have the distinct pleasure and privilege of hearing a first version. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. So, so much. And thank you for your patience. And, um, oh, it's beautiful. And I really... Thank you for asking questions and for holding a, a nice space, a quarantine of holiness within the quarantine. We need to hold on to each other now that we can't touch each other. 
I wish you well, and I I hope our I hope our paths cross, and I'm I'm grateful to Max Porter. So a, a shout out to him for. For, for, oh, for putting us together. You should have seen us talk about you as we walked down the streets of Sydney in Australia. We were at the literary festival there and he said to me, so Paul, have you ever considered calling Ocean Vuong? And I said, I have. Do you know him? And he said, I do. And I will put you in touch. So in touch we are now that we're in this quarantine period and I look forward to to meeting you in person, not necessarily for a book tour, but when we have a moment to share quotations. Our trinity, our trinity, our trinity, we will do it. I promise you, we will find a way of, of creating that magical threesome for sure. Be well. Okay. Take care of yourself. Uh, stay safe. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.